0: What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Kamal Ravikant is the best-selling author of the book, Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends On It. He is also an Army veteran and an early-stage technology investor, but most of all, he's one of the most kind and genuine humans that I know. In this conversation, we talk about everything from his writing process to what he looks for in early-stage investments, and even spend time debating the current media landscape and how various technology platforms fit in. This episode covers a lot, and I really enjoyed talking to Kamal for such a long time, so I hope you enjoy it. But before we get into the episode, I want to talk about the two sponsors that made this episode possible. The first is Crypto.com. They've been longtime supporters of the podcast and are doing great work. They're a pioneering payment and cryptocurrency platform that seeks to accelerate the world's transition to cryptocurrency. They have a vision to put cryptocurrency in every wallet, which is frankly why we're all here. The Crypto.com app offers a full range of financial products with competitive pricing, well-designed user experience, and high security. It's the best place to buy, sell, and pay with crypto. They also had an awesome marketing campaign going on in cities like San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Miami. I call it the Plan B marketing campaign. They've got huge signs, billboards on the sides of buses, trash cans, etc. that say things like the $22 trillion printing machine isn't going to stop anytime soon. They're really doing a lot to drive awareness and adoption. So head on over and check out crypto.com and tell them I sent you. Again, that's crypto.com. It's a great URL, but crypto.com is also the place where mass adoption is occurring. Our second sponsor today is Taxbit. These guys are awesome. They're easily the most trusted cryptocurrency tax solution in the market. The IRS released new tax forms for the 2019 tax year, which require all taxpayers to attest to whether they traded cryptocurrency during the year. If so, you got to file an IRS 8949 form, which reports your capital gains and losses. I don't know what that really means. They just told me to read it. It sounds like accountant speak. All I know is Taxbit helps you. They automate your cryptocurrency taxes, enabling you to effortlessly track, calculate and report your transactions. You can easily connect your exchanges to securely sync your transactions and run them through TaxBit's tax engine. That's right, you can generate a completed tax form with a single click through TaxBit. A completed tax form with a single click. It's like taxes made easy. The company was founded by tax attorneys and CPAs, and they also provide live support with experts whenever you need it. This team of experts are on hand who have had experience facilitating thousands of crypto tax filings and IRS crypto tax audits. So TaxBit has built the most trusted cryptocurrency tax solution. You can head on over to taxbit.com slash invite slash POMP and you'll get 10% off your tax plan today with a free trial. Again, that's www.taxbit.com slash invite slash POMP. Head on over, get 10% off, pay your taxes, and let's keep going in the crypto world. Now lastly, don't forget, Off the Chain is not just a podcast. Every morning, I wake my ass up and I write, a daily newsletter for 40,000 investors analyzing Bitcoin, blockchain, and cryptocurrency. If you want to subscribe and read what I'm thinking, head on over to offthechain.substack.com, offthechain.substack.com, and you can subscribe today and join 40,000 other investors who read whatever's on my mind every morning. Again, offthechain.substack.com. Now, let's get into this episode with Kamal. It's one of my favorites of all time, and I hope you enjoy it. sitting here with Kamal. Um, we got a whole bunch of stuff to talk about, but uh, he's probably one of the more thoughtful, wide-ranging people that I know. Uh, we've known each other for, I don't know, a couple of years now. Um, so I'm just excited to hang out and talk. Thanks for doing this.
1: Thanks for having me, man. How did we first yeah. meet?
0: That's a great question. Because
1: we are both, the connection was we were both in the army. Yes. And I remember joking at the time that you and I were probably the only people in the crypto investing space who were actually once in the military, who had actually served. Like, at our level. I'd never met yes. anybody else. Who would, and, There's you
0: know. one other person who never talks about being in the military who's a pretty decently well-known Silicon Valley investor, but I, I feel bad. I can't like out him. Yeah. <laughs> Don't <laughs> um, I've yeah, yeah. been in the military. <laughs> uh, but, but it's somebody you wouldn't expect. Okay. Right? Um, so, uh, all right. You've done a whole bunch of stuff. Let's just start from the very beginning, like growing up, and then how do you get to the military?
1: Like, what, it's simple what? man, you walk in a recruiters. No, office, no, no, and they no, no, no. happily take you, man. That's how you get in the military. Sometimes they even pay you to do it. <laughs> <Sometimes>.
0: <laughs> what uh, no, but like what what's the process there and, and kinda how do you how do you grow up? Um and what's that story?
1: Uh well growing up was um, you know, single mom, two kids. Uh my brother and I basically raised ourselves in libraries and I graduated high school, got the hell out of there. It was in Jamaica, Queens, which is where rap came from. It kind of gives you an idea of the kind of place it was, you know. Wrapped it, didn't come from uh, joy and bliss, you know. And went to college for a year, had a full ride. After a year, I was like, this, uh, no. And I went, I walked in the recruiter's office and I signed up. And I had just finished a year, and I was, I think a week or two later, I was in a plane to Atlanta, Georgia. A guy in Atlanta put me on a bus and took me to Fort Benning and shaved my head. And that was that story. All right. Before we get into a uh, good Fort Benning, <laughs> um, in the summer, what, let me tell you, what was in Georgia? What was
0: the fascination with the library? Like, like why? Why that being a place where,
1: when you look well, back, you say that's where you grew up? Well, that's where Mom could leave us where we were safe, mm-hmm. I also grew up on books, mm-hmm. love books. You know, books were my refuge as a child. Yeah. I always was. Always reading.
0: In. While you're in the library, are, I'm assuming that you're not like, hey, what book do they want us to read for school? It's much more how do you want to spend your time and, and kind of read the things that you find interesting.
1: Yeah. I think we, my brother and I grew up like reading everything we could. You know, that was just our thing.
0: Yeah. And it's, fu- it's funny because uh, so many parents try to get their kids. They try to force their kids to read. And then you're like, no, like we enjoyed it, it sounds like. Like, like you guys just wanted to go do that. How does that happen?
1: Um, I don't know. You're in a library. What are you going to do? Yeah. You know, you don't have the internet. You don't have video games. What are you going to do? Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. It 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 wonder. It makes me wonder, is there something about putting somebody in an environment where they only have one option, right? And is that different between a kid's kind of development and if you do the same thing with an adult, you know, do they just walk out? <laughs> like, did you guys, are you guys ever sit there like, you know what? Not today. Like we're leaving. <laughs> or is it just mom said to sit here and so we're going to read because that's the thing to do here.
1: I guess. I mean it's worth the it trying. You lock someone up in a room full of books. What are they going to do eventually? You know? <laughs> yeah. You know you get bored. You'll, you'll find a way to pass the time. That's
0: fair. Um, Fort Benning is not a place that many people would think one somebody who grew up around reading books in a library wants to go. <laughs> and two uh, most people don't Want to voluntarily go in the heat
1: uh, in the infantry training, right? It was infantry, yeah. It wasn't the most thought-out decision. Okay. It was more like, I want to do this. I was in college for a year. Um, bored out of my mind, um, you know, the usual, like, like doing, I mean, I had a great GPA and everything, but I was like, there's got to be more than this. And I also, like, I wanted to, I felt like I wanted to serve my country. I had this thing. I was like, I just want to do this. And... Um, I went to all the different. One day, I just went to all the different recruiters, and I, I knew I wanted uh, to finish my education. That that I knew, but mm-hmm. I knew I didn't want to do it then. So, uh, the army offered me the most for the GI Bill, and then they were like, "Yeah, but if you join the infantry, the special <laughs> ones, if you would really, oh yeah, you're to have a blast. You know, join the infantry. You know, we're gonna give you this much more at that point. You're like, wow, that much more for college. Okay." So so I signed up and then I then I was like and on top of it if you join the mountain infantry for today just you know today's sale you'll get this much extra college I was like sweet sign me up so I ended up in the tenth mountain as an infantry soldier. So for those that don't uh,
0: understand military uh, <laughs> advertising, uh, the military does a great job of uh, having a very high correlation between. Nobody wants to do a job. Let's make it seem really, really exciting. And so the more exciting, the more they sell something, it's really just because they have quotas on the back end and not a lot of people want to go do that. And so they start with the commercials that, hey, you could jump out of a plane. You can walk up the mountain. We'll we'll teach you to shoot. All that kind of stuff. So then eventually when that doesn't work, then they just literally start, well, we'll pay for your college. We'll do that. And they start offering incentives. And then if it gets really, really bad, then they literally just say we'll give you a signing bonus.
1: Like, in, Oh yeah, in, I got a signing times. bonus too. That's Did you right? get one? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I think there was some shortage or something at the time. Whatever, I don't remember.
0: This was very popular. So when I signed up for the Army in March of 2006, was right around the whole surge and, and all this kind of stuff. And they were just like, literally nobody wants to do this, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> so I remember talking to the recruiter and him being like, Pretty much, like, there's two lists. There's the list of, like, you can go do this stuff, and it was all the, like, really technical training, things that, like, was very obvious. There's a job when you get out. So, hey, you want to be a uh, UAV, you know, uh, driver or pilot? Sure, we'll train you up how to do that. Very obvious when you leave the military. uh, There's a job waiting for you at some private company. Then there's another list, and it was all the dangerous shit that had no use in the civilian world. Like bomb defusal. Yeah. Uh, I, and you want to know the one job that was on that list that uh, actually had a, an application outside of the military that I just found uh, at the time confused afterwards. I remember being like, wow, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, truck driver because yeah. of all of the roadside bombs. And so people had realized, hey, if I sit inside of a base and I you know, fly UAVs or I'm the accountant or I do all these other kind of jobs, I'm pretty safe. If I'm in the military, if I'm in the infantry, or I'm defusing bombs, or I'm driving the truck, like those all have like very similar um, kind of danger levels to them. And so it was, you know, a bunch of those kind of
1: combat type roles, and then truck driving. I wouldn't, you know, I never would have thought of truck driving as a combat role. But I, I guess, yeah, when you got... Especially uh, in Iraq, right, where yeah, all the yeah, those are yeah, bombs. yeah, yeah. Yeah. so
0: all right so you get to the tenth mountain uh for those that don't know uh the word mountain means something um and so you guys are uh light infantry what was that whole experience like what
1: would you take away from uh from the military what did I take away from the military um look as an 18 year old kid it was um it was the best thing I could have done for myself yeah like it was you get challenged and you get you realize you can pretty much step up to anything you know you don't get you don't Learn that in college mm-hmm. you know you you can drift to college and do just fine if you want to you can't drift through boot camp you know <laughs> you can't drift through tr- infantry training you know you can't you gotta step up so for me I think it was that training part that transition from civilian to soldier that I um, that I'm grateful for yeah. you know the um, that I really look back and it was very very formative it was um, I'm proud of it and I'm grateful for it you know it's you you think about tribal societies, right? And I I've, I've talked about this before. Like they have this thing where like when you go from become a boy to a man, you know, like there's there's, there's almost like a rite of passage, a testing. So you, then you welcome back in the tribe. And there's something special there. You know, you step up and you realize like I'm okay, I'm going into a different phase of my life. I'm more is required of me and I'm able to meet that challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, physically, mentally, emotionally. We don't have that in our society except for like the military, maybe some sports. You know, sports, yeah, uh, military, yes. Outside of that, not, not much. Where, where you challenge, you come out, okay, I am different. Like I am, I, I have gone through that fire, right? Yeah. And I have walked through that fire and I've come through it and I'm forged uh, differently. And how, it's,
0: much, how much of that's adversity versus training, Right, Like, hey, you just went and did something that's hard. So not the actual like building back up, but the breaking down. Because ultimately what they do in basic training is they break you down and they build you back up kind of how they want with certain Mm -hmm. disciplines, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I always think about those are two different things, right? Now they string them together very nicely and as you come out of that process, all the benefits that you're talking about, but can you pinpoint whether it's the breaking down process or the building back up process that you
1: think is more important there? I think it's honestly just challenging every day. Mm-hmm. It, through the breaking down and the building up, you, you don't have a day off. You know, there's no day, <laughs> you thought, boy, today's a good day. <laughs> no, you know? load,
0: no load management that you see in professional sports today?
1: <laughs> no, but like, so I think it's more like the being challenged. You know, And you just learn, you just step up, step up. And they, it's not like they make the challenges easier, it's like they, they make them harder, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's what it was. Yeah, one of the
0: things uh, that really sticks out in my head from basic training, did you guys ever, um, they would go in the mornings on these runs and they never told you how far you were gonna run, right? It, it would, uh, for us at least, it was like, there's an A group, a B group, and a C group. And you generally knew like the A group was the fastest, B group was a little bit slower, and C group was the slowest. Uh, And we would start running. And it wasn't like, you know, we're not running 20 miles. We're either going to run a mile, two miles, five miles, whatever it is. But the whole idea of like you don't know how far you're going to go and you're just with a bunch of people and there's some guy leading you and it's just go. I always thought like it's so different than the way society runs because it's always what's the task? Somebody tells you a task and then people go execute that one task. But you don't have to go past kind of the finish line that's already laid out in front of you whereas with this it was completely blind to you it's just we're gonna run until we tell you to stop and like again it wasn't crazy but it was just
1: the unknown ends up like hardening your mind of like yeah you're gonna run forever you just do it you kind of go in that zone i'm just whatever it is i'm just gonna do it you're right i remember that i've forgotten about that it's that's very very interesting right because then you do you stop being task driven and you just become like kind of like okay I'm just gonna do it. Yeah. The the other thing um,
0: in basic training to me that I walk away from, which seems to be a um, a misconception, is like everyone's like oh the military there's no uh, ingenuity there's no innovation there's no um, kind of you as an individual having to uh, make o- your own decisions etc. Everyone thinks the military is. Kamal, you're a private, you know, second class. I'm going to tell you what to do today. And when I say move your right foot, you move your right foot. Okay, now move your left foot. And it's very kind of rigid. But actually, like, once you go through the process, you realize, like, eh, it's really not true, right? There's structure, but within that structure, most of the best soldiers are people who are presented a problem, and they can figure out how to solve that problem within the structure that they're given. Did you take any of that away?
1: Or probably well, not- look, look, problem solving on the fly is what building startups is. That's, you know, like, I mean, like, I, I don't think, my, you know, the military trained me for building startups, but looking back, like, that kind of experience, you know, like, I always say, like, look, if I was to be hiring people, um, you know, I'd be hiring for veterans, and especially, like, veterans who've been through shit, because they're, gonna, they're not going to complain about the hours or this or that, like, the stuff, you know, they're just used to solving problems. And building a startup is nothing but so daily solving problems. All right, you know. we're, we're going to dig into yeah, this. Yeah, we can just jump right yeah. into this one. Yeah. One of the things that
0: uh, is funny to me is this whole concept of work-life balance. And it's not funny because it's wrong. It's just the society's approach to taking one solution and trying to say this is the solution for everybody. It kind of makes more sense to me of like, why don't you just work as much as you need to to accomplish what you want? And so if for you that's 5 hours a week, great. For me if that's 120 hours, great. But the one size fits
1: all type solution just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It doesn't. I mean it it doesn't work. You know, it's that's you know what's interesting is I find um you know I find some of my peers, you know, like who've done very very well Talk about work-life balance and how you shouldn't work this much, or whatever. But I also remember how they made their money. <laughs> you know, they're you know, they didn't have work-life balance. The the really the ones who've done very very well, um, they've all been obsessed. Mm-hmm. I think it almost takes that level of obsession to do that well. You know, mm-hmm. you can't you you have to sacrifice a lot. You know, you end know, you have to make choices, right? And um, I think work-life balance is almost like a afterwards. Okay, now I can sit back and and kinda like ruminate and think you know, think what's important. Um but work like it's uh I don't know, I guess thrown around a lot. It's more of these days a corporate word than, than you know, my world has always been startups. Mm-hmm. Been like small teams, uh building stuff and working really hard to get stuff done.
0: Yeah. You used the word obsession. Um we're recording this uh about a week after, um, Kobe Bryant just died in a uh, helicopter accident. And uh, so, Plane and I spent a bunch of time going back and kind of reading different things he had said. We watched a docu- uh, documentary um, that he made, et cetera. And one of the key themes throughout almost every single piece of content,
1: interview, et cetera, that he did, was talk about obsession. On well, right? that, level, that level, you gotta be. You don't you don't get there by accident. You don't get there by talent. Talent will only get you so far because mm-hmm. there you come gonna come against other opponents with talent. Mm-hmm. That obsession is what gets you great at your craft.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know? In one of the interviews, uh, I mean, it blew me away. He goes, "I had a 40 inch vertical. I didn't have 45. I had a 40 inch vertical." And he was saying it as if like 45 inch vertical was, uh, you know, the standard. And he had a, 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 a he couldn't jump very high. <laughs> and I was sitting there thinking. I I might know one person in the world who's got a 40-inch vertical, right? Like an incredible athleticism just as a kind of a standard or, or a natural athleticism that he had. But he's looking at it ahead and saying there's somebody in the world who can jump 45 inches, right? And so since I can't do that, I have to be obsessed with all of these little details in the game so that I can compete against that person.
1: Yeah, you look at the greats in any field, man. Like They... They have it. It comes down to craft. It comes down to just hammering and chiseling at your craft every day, you know, or at least like in for periods at a time. Um, and that's something I've seen people and you know people write to me about writing and this and that. And I'm like, well, write. How do you want to? You know, like it's mm-hmm. you gotta be. You gotta really care about the craft. You gotta like write and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and edit and rewrite and write rewrite. That's where the real writing is, right? Mm-hmm. Same thing with him. Like, I think with Kobe, what I remember reading a, a quote by him where he said, like, when he got to the NBA, he was really surprised to see that a lot of people there took it as a job. He was like, I thought they'd be like me, where that's all it was. That's all they had. Right. Mm-hmm. And he's like, it was a job for them. And it really surprised me that it was an actual job. Yeah. You know, well, that's why he got where he is. How much of that? Where he was. Yeah. Because C- what he said
0: uh, as part of that was, hey, that's when I decided I'm different than these guys, right? And I, I want to be one of the greatest ever. And what it makes you think is, do you have to have the aspirations of the greatest ever at whatever your craft is and then it backs into, okay, now you're obsessed to get there, right? And so you have that obsessive nature. Or can you actually be obsessed with the craft and not have some kind of end goal in mind? Like, does the goal pull you to... Be obsessed and, and you're driving towards something oh, oh, or, or are you, you kinda of blind and, and
1: No, I think you have to care about the thing. I mean he loved the game. You mm-hmm. gotta love the game. You know, mm-hmm. like I don't think you could get to that point and like he could get to that point if he didn't love playing. Mm-hmm. Right? Um you, so that's where if you love something and that's your thing, you are gonna work hard to get better at it. Yeah. That's just the nature of the thing.
0: How does that manifest in founders? right? Because founders are unique in that if you're a basketball player, you play basketball, right? You got to dribble, you got to shoot, you got to do all this kind of stuff. There's skills that go into performing in the game. When you're a founder, there's the business you're in, right? So you can learn more about the industry and and kind of your competitors and, and kind of what you're doing there. But there's also skills as a founder, hiring, leading, writing, you know, all this kind of stuff. Where does that obsession manifest itself in the best founders that you've seen?
1: Well, you know, a lot of that stuff, uh, no one's taught. You just kind of learn as you go along, right? It's not like, uh, you, don't, you don't really learn that in school, you know? Like, Definitely not. <laughs> you don't, you know, people think they can go to school and learn to, and start startups, you know. Like, I remember originally when I started, I would, I, like some of the best people I worked for, I been mean, worked with or had worked for me, never had the schooling, but man, were they talented. Mm-hmm. Were they stupidly talented.
0: Where does that come from?
1: They cared. I mean, like you know, these are the guys like building computers when they were kids, you know, made their first video game when they were, you know, when they weren't even they were in junior high, Mm -hmm. you know, the ones who fiddle around and have and and care and then just get deeper and deeper into it. But for founders, um, what I they have here's what I found: the best ones are obsessed about a problem they want to solve. That's ultimately what it is. You 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 care not because it's the hot space. Not because that's where the money's this this year is investing. They genuinely care. Like they're obsessed about it. You know, like those have always um, usually been like the best investments. You know, if I talk amongst my peers and just look at my record, like some of my very best investments you knew, like this person was, I was thinking of one in particular, like I had my first meeting with this guy. I was like, man, he was born to build this. Really? Yeah. He like this guy was at one point living out of his car, trying to you know trying to work on this and stuff. Like it wasn't like because it was the cool thing to do, Mm -hmm. you know, or because like, hey, you know, this there's an opportunity here. Like he was going to do it whether he made money on it or not. He just this was a problem he wanted to solve, and sure enough, ended up doing very well. You know, Um, I, I didn't think it would honestly because it was such a long shot, but you know, like because he cared so much, he got the right people involved. You know, it's it's uh leadership is also about inspiring passion in others. And if you can inspi- inspire passion in other talented people and they form around you, okay, that's something to watch out for. Right.
0: So so okay, so you, you nailed on a couple of things and this idea of obsession being applied to building a company. One of the things that's been disappointing for me as I've invested in hundred plus companies at this point, right? That's a lot. It's a lot, but The ones that don't work out, you usually find out pretty quickly. Yeah, right. It's that J curve. Yeah, and the reason why you find out pretty quickly, in my experience, I don't want to say the founders quit, but that obsessive nature, that that passion for every single obstacle that gets in my way, I'm going to run through the wall, and and it's not going to matter. That wasn't there, right?
1: That's what it takes. Yeah, you know, very. I mean, how many business success stories are really like start, boom, exit? You know, there there's some. I actually know some, but even there, you you find the the crinkles in the path, right? Mm-hmm. It's literally what makes them get up every day and go face that beast, face that dragon. Yeah. Right. And so you have to care. You have to care at that what's beyond that dragon. Eventually, yeah. it tires you out. Otherwise.
0: You also talked about uh, the people who are most passionate and obsessed get other people around them that talented, but also they elicit more passion out of those folks. Yeah. That's what good leaders do. How do you think about the difference between the founder, right? So the person who, this is my idea, I was born to build this, et cetera, and then those first couple of hires, right? And one of the things I've been thinking more about is a lot of times those first couple of hires, they fit in one of two categories. Either they're also missionaries, right? And so they're, hey, I believe just as much as you believe, and I want to come help you build this, et cetera, or they're very Mm mercenary-like, and meaning that I'm a gun for hire, right? And... You tell me to run, I'm gonna run. You tell me to shoot, I'm gonna shoot. But when things get tough, they tend to be a little bit higher risk takers because they're willing to join an early, stage, sharp, whatever. But it's still not that that kind of missionary type thing like the founder. Is there any trends that you've seen in all the investments you've made of who, which bucket those kind of first hires tend to turn out better?
1: Uh, honestly, no. Um... I'll tell you, I'll think of my experience and what I've built stuff. Um, Not the mercenary ones. Mm -hmm. It's the ones that care. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just just going through experience and stuff I've built. With companies, honestly, like if I invest, I don't get metal that much in that, you know, I'll be like paying attention to who the hires are. You know, I just like, look, I'm here to help. Call me when you need it, you know. So I don't really pay attention to it's it's the founders' it's job who they want to build it with.
0: Mm-hmm. We were talking earlier about this idea of uh, when people first start investing. I, I was uh, culprit number one of this. You want to invest and then be helpful, and what you quickly realize is the companies that need all of your help are probably not the best companies, right? Like the founders who are going to be successful with or without you are actually the deals that you want to be in yep. because they're going to be successful, right? Um,
1: yeah, the only time I get really involved is if I'm advising a company. You know, mm-hmm. that's different because that's a different role, mm-hmm. right? But investment, like uh, we said in the elevator, you know, investors don't build a company. know, yeah, they don't. <laughs> Elaborate I, on that. <laughs> I mean, they just don't. I mean, I'm always laugh when they, you know I see investors take credit for oh, you know, and I helps this company that's exited. You you give them a check. A lot of people write checks. It does not make you a company builder. It makes you a check writer you know let's be honest right and a lot of it's luck you got lucky with that check too right um
0: you ever seen anyone tweet about all the checks they wrote that didn't work out usually not right true
1: true <laughs> true yeah yeah um yeah it's it's the people it's the founders it's the team it's the people and the um, you know, in the trenches that build a company. It's not the ones that check in once a month. Oh, tell me what's going on. Let me give you some of my advice. Let me give you some of my valuable advice on what to do and then run away. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it, even if the advice is great, it's the people that are building that build that are responsible for the success. It's, um.
0: this is applicable both in the situation you're talking about with investors and companies, but also in life more generally, uh, I started to think about advice differently. When people ask for advice, most people will say, you should do X, right? And it's very kind of directive, uh, and here's my personal opinion about your situation, go do this. And what you find out again is, that person that you're giving the advice to probably has more context, they may or may not agree with you, and giving a directive type piece of advice doesn't allow them any leeway between making their own decisions, et cetera. And so they're not really invested in the decision many times. Instead, when people ask for advice, now what I say is, well, let me tell you people that I know who have been in that situation, kind of the evaluation that they made, the decision they made, how it worked out. By the way, I don't know what you should do, but like here's a bunch more data points, like what do you want to do? And in the company side, they can go to a bunch of people and do that. But in life, what I found is like, people kind of already know the answers or know Mm -hmm. what they want to do they're really looking for validation, mm-hmm. right? It's not advice, it's validation that they're looking for.
1: Yeah, I'm not much of a giving life advice guy, you know, <laughs> which is kind of interesting coming from the books I write. But the books I write from, are my experience. Mm-hmm. All I can do is share my experience. That's it. You know, life advice, we're, we're looking at everyone through the filters of our perception, filters of our biases. So it's not really – I don't think there's ever great advice. There's just people's filters and – um yeah, I I I don't really ask people for advice. Yeah, yeah. Uh why did you start writing the books?
0: Like what like what was the the first book in terms of what what was kind of the genesis of
1: it? Well, you know, one thing I was doing when I was building startups was actually I was obsessively writing on the weekends and nights when I had time when I whenever I was free. I was training myself to write literary fiction. I wanted to write literary fiction novels. Why? I, I just loved them. I did I loved I was a huge Hemingway fan and I just like wanted to write clear simple stories I just wanted to tell stories so this wasn't like something that came out of nowhere Mm -hmm. Um,
0: lock a kid in the library and not only will he read he might write too he might write too funny (laughs) enough
1: right and and so like I spent years doing it you know talk about obsession right Mm -hmm. and year and sending uh, sending manuscripts and collecting rejection letters because I didn't study in college college I studied economics and biology you know I think uh, like, none of those teach you creative writing. Um, and in some ways I think that that actually turned out to be good, because I didn't learn a style, you know? I didn't have training, so I could actually go and just break things and try things and come up with my own. And eventually found Hemingway, I fell in love with his clear, simple prose, and like, okay, this is the, I don't want to write like him, but I want to write what, what he was trying to do. Like, never a word that you can't understand never a word that you you have a problem spelling and take a complex subject, take a complex emotion, but put it in a clear, simple sentence that it just makes you feel it. Mm-hmm. Then you succeed it, which is actually really, really, really hard. The simpler you get something, you know, in any in any craft to get its simplicity is the ultimate sophistication, right? Who said that Carl Lagerfeld? Mm-hmm. Um, is the hardest thing to do. And so I worked for years and writing and sending in manuscripts and collecting rejection letters until they became better and better, until they became, uh, you know, from type, you know basic forest standard to uh, a hand note on the letter to um, like a phone call to in-person meetings, you know, to uh, all that. And then... Um, but the books I've gotten known for, the books I've written, are now all in the self-help genre, funny enough. you know, and I never set out to be that guy. I'm not a self-help guy. Like, look, we're doers, right? Like, I don't sit around and – I mean, I sit around and th- – I do think a lot about life. But I want practical stuff. I want things that work. You know, the whole startup mentality is give me something practical. I don't want theory, right? So, but those two ideas are connected, right, that? in terms of – I forget who
0: says, uh, I would have made it shorter, but I ran out of time, mm-hmm. right? Kind of that obsession of how do you make it as clear as possible? Uh, and then the practical, actionable stuff on the building side. Actually, by having very clear, simple, practical language, that writing makes things actionable,
1: right? Yeah. Like there's a yeah. connection between those yeah, two Yeah, in fact, if you see a writer use a lot of big words, they're hiding. It's mm-hmm. easier to do that and sound smart, but you don't walk away changed. My thing is always like, "Okay, you read this book a month later. What's the effect on you? Are you better? If not, it failed You know that's that's um I hold these things to a high bar right and uh so the the funny enough, I never set out to write these kind of books. I was gonna write you know literary novels and I was gonna win the national book award. that's what I wanted right and like those kind that kind of stuff and instead um. I had built this company and uh, fully funded it myself for years, and then I ran out of money. So I took funding. It was doing well, and the whole thing blew up, and I lost everything and like everything. And you know, it was it was also very humiliating, and I kind of fell apart along with it. And in the depth of like a um, like a really dark depression, um, which I've met. You know, you lose everything. Everything falls apart, and everything. You know, it's kind of normal looking mm-hmm. back. Um, because your identity is tied to the company. Your identity is tied to what you were doing, right? And it's not that the company failed. You, you know, you failed. You know, ninety-something percent of startups fail. You know, but you forget that when you're in it, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you you know, go into these things, forgetting that the odds are significantly against you. You know, um, and math works. And math, and math does work, and especially because when you are doing well and then the, the tide just turns you know and there's nothing you could do except just get swamped by it and things happen in the market that we had no control over you know like market shift and that's <laughs> that's the way she wrote right but i fell apart with it and in that time period i came i decided something in me was like look i'm going to get out of this and how am i going to get out of this and i sat down wrote a vow to myself and then i set out to live that vow and, that, and it was a vow about changing my internal, it was a vow to love myself, but really it was a vow by mindset, by changing my internal mindset. And then the practical side of me set out to how to do it. Didn't read any books on it, you know, didn't trust books on it. Because, um, you know, let's be honest, most of those books are just full of platitudes. You know, that maybe make you, give you panacea, make you feel better in the moment, but where's the practical thing that will actually shift me on the inside? And so set out to do it and and kind of figured it out for myself you know i was the only subject i was just working on myself and and it worked and um and it worked really well and um so i started sharing with friends you know like i was like you know i was kind of like a new convert you know like um and uh it worked for them because it was so simple and easy and practical and it was all internal work that anyone can do because uh, we're all the human mind and um so then some convinced me to actually write down a book, a little book. Um, so I, so without thinking anything would come out of it, I wrote it down as a little book, um, put it out on Amazon, self-published it, because I'd committed I would, and uh, the book was called Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends On It, and it took off, and it became one of Amazon's success stories. And this was in uh, 2012. So now here, let's talk about a little bit about an obsession and writing, right? So I did something that people weren't doing in the, by writing books. and the last chapter, I put in, here's my email address. <laughs> Feel free to send me an email, because I didn't expect to sell any copies. Mm-hmm. I was basically, I have written it, and I was gonna give it to friends to help them, and that was it, right? And literally self-published it, like no marketing nothing, like nothing. I thought, of, actually I thought I was gonna be a big laughing stock in Silicon Valley, right? And Guess what? I started getting emails. I got a lot of emails. <laughs> I got a lot of emails. And that book came out in twenty twelve and now it's twenty twenty. But let's go back a year. So in like seven years of emails, we're talking I don't know. We're talking a lot, a lot of emails. Um and I've responded to basically most of them, unless people are like just rude or you know, yeah. just wasting your time. If they're thoughtful, I'll always respond. And um and what are they in, writing about? Like, what are they writing? It's amazing, like how, uh, you know, sharing how the like the book impacted. I'm getting lots of emails about how the book saved their life, mm-hmm. saved the life of a loved one, how uh, it's changing their lives for the first time. They have self-esteem, confidence. You know, because all this stuff comes from from the same same reservoir, uh, from the same hole we're trying to fill, and um, and also because I was just sharing my story, but what I wrote it was in a very practical way. I wrote down, and this is what I did step by step, and this is how to replicate it. Mm-hmm. you know, Which no one had done in this space. Um, at least that I'd come across. And, but so here we have these thousands of emails. Here's also another thing I would get, questions. I would, so over seven years, you start to see there's a pattern in the questions. And you start to realize, yeah, you know what? I really held back. Because I didn't expect this to go anywhere. I was just writing like a brief, basically what I wrote was a primer, but not the full thing. And I was like, look, given the success of the book and I realized I need to put this book out to the world in a bigger way because it's already getting spreading all over the world but it's only available in English and Amazon and people are translating it and just putting it online and putting their name on it and it's like Jesus. It's on Weibo all of a sudden, right? Yeah, or something. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, but look, if the book's got to spread then I then I got to give it the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So then I sat down and spent a year working on it and the the all those years of, of um starting to be a literary fiction writer, right? I never end up writing literary fiction. I've written a novel since then, other books since then. But, but what it did was, it taught me the craft. You know, it taught me the craft so that when life gave me this opportunity, I was able to apply the craft. If I didn't have the craft, I wouldn't have written a book that would have been this successful. You know, it's written to be so simple that any anyone can apply it, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I did the same. I sat down and I spent about a year just going through the questions. Of like, how do I answer these? But do it in a way that's not just a Q&A. Like, write an actual book. And I worked very hard on it and gave it everything. And, uh, I mean, that's a level of obsession that I didn't even know I had. And, um, you know, sold it to Harper One, who's, uh, you know, like probably the top publisher in the self-help space. And, uh, you know, because I had choices of publishers I was meeting, and they got it. They were like, "Okay, we get what you're doing. We're not gonna screw with it. Mm -hmm. You know, like we're not gonna try to make it at like a regular self-help book." But they tried once I sold it to them, and I completely pushed back. I was like, "No, I mean, I was like thinking I'm gonna call my attorney and like cancel this contract." But like, no. Then when I pushed back, explained why. I was like, "Look, I had the benefit of something you don't. I have like tens of thousands, what, ten thousand emails from readers telling me what worked for them. Mm -hmm. I have the data." You know, I know what they what they're asking for. I know what they need. I know where I failed in the original book. I know where I need to step up, and so they trusted me. And I I worked very hard on it, and uh, that just came out a few weeks ago. And sure enough, I'm getting emails from people who had the original version. They're like, "Yeah, I needed this. You know, but I didn't even know I needed this version. But like, I needed this. Um, and so now the now the questions are resolved. Like, I gave it all. So now I can say, okay, I've written this book. This, um, this book is done. Um, it's been a long journey. Um, but, you know, and it takes that kind of obsession, you know, because why expand on a book that's already successful? Because I knew that I hadn't given it my all. So I had to go back and do it. What's the
0: process like, the difference in the process between writing it and self publishing it on Amazon versus with the publisher? Like not not that like oh the publisher does a revision right or, or uh, edits it etc. But like when you're approaching writing it, it, it's very different to write a book from the beginning from scratch where you say I want to create a practical book that documents what I did. I want to share that with other people. Go right and you write it yourself and you self publish. It's a whole other thing to say okay now I've got a publisher. They may or may not try to change what I want to write etc. I also have a. Successful book a very successful book that's already been out there for a while right, and so uh, I've already put some of these ideas out in the world, and then I've got all these questions that people had etc And so you're almost like taking multiple different inputs to produce something
1: did you find that actually? uh, No, what I did was I I mean I took all the questions because that's I'm in, in the end you're writing for the reader But I stuck to my vision Okay. Use those to have a vision for what I was gonna put out. And even with the publisher, which is why I went with HarperOne, um, I was very clear when they sent me edits. I was like, Kamal would probably turn down 90% of those suggestions. And they would come back and they would agree. They're like, okay, now I see, what, and I would explain them why. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm like, look, you're used to people who, you're used to self-help people who write books. I'm a writer who's writing a self-help book. There's a big difference. Right, and and, but it was very interesting. At the end, the editor told me she learned a lot by actually watching me go through the process and rewriting and rewriting this book. She learned, you know, uh, because like most self help books aren't written by writers, people who are trained to be writers. They're written by people who want to be self help people, you know, Mm -hmm. who are writing a book to get a brand out, right? You know, like it's it's so there's a difference, right? What you're
0: describing is very similar in business as well, right? There's a there's kind of common knowledge or commonly accepted practices for building a company or writing a book, right? They're two different industries, Mm -hmm. two different um, activities, but there's been a bunch of people who've written books, a bunch of people who started companies. And if you go talk to 20 people in each industry, they'll tell you, well, you know, a self-help book is written, A, B, C, D, E, F, Mm. whatever. Company, you know, first you gotta do this, then you do this, this, whatever. The people who don't follow those uh, kind of well-worn paths, one of two things happens. You get greatness, or you get complete failures. That's it.
1: <laughs> that, but that's the, that's the game changers, right? And I'm, I like those odds. I like yeah. the binary odds, actually. I, and look, that's invest, uh, venture investing in a nutshell. It's binary odds, right? Yep. They the f- ex- exit or go to zero. That simple. Uh, same thing here, mm-hmm. you know? And and you gotta really trust your gut. You really gotta believe in what you got. You know, you really gotta, really gotta care. Otherwise, you're not gonna do that. Yeah, I've talked about it on the podcast before, but
0: uh, when I went out to Silicon Valley in 2014, Um, I knew one person, I'd met him on Twitter before, uh, and uh, I DM'd him and I said, hey, I'm here, Uh, you're the only person I know, can I come see you? And I frankly didn't know anything really about him that much other than we talked a couple times, Uh, and I also didn't really know what I wanted to get out of the conversation. Um, But as I was leaving, I said to him, I said, you know, I'm a young guy, what's your best advice for me? And he, without hesitation, as if he had told this to, 10,000 people who would come to his office before he said oh, i got two things for you one keep your personal burn rate as low as possible because it gives you the opportunity to take on high risk opportunities right so you can go join that startup and you don't need a $150,000 salary etc and two he said you will be more rewarded here in Silicon Valley by having massive uh, taking massive swings and failing than you will by having small success yeah and I remember yeah. walking out and it was so counterintuitive the
1: first one made sense, but the second one was so counterintuitive. That well, that's what makes Silicon Valley Silicon Valley, which is it's why true. you see other countries trying to recreate it. And I've, But they don't have that mentality. You, you think know? it's a mentality thing? It's a culture, it's a mindset, it's been, the, been that way for decades. You know, So like even the investors think that way, then the new crop coming up think that way. So mm-hmm. it just gets baked and baked more into it. Mm-hmm. Um, like most places, if you failed, you won't be able to raise money again. Silicon Valley, no. Like, I mean, as long as like you know, it was a good bet, you know. As long you, as you're
0: not an idiot about it. Yeah.
1: Well, not an idiot, but like, you know, it didn't fail because of you. Mm-hmm. You know, things fail because of a billion reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Or succeed because of a billion reasons. And it's, um, yeah. Uh, people, this, you know, most biggest success stories are like multiple founders, and it's usually like the second or third one. Mm-hmm. Is that true in writing, where people? Write
0: something, and their first second third attempt at writing something is either not successful or doesn't have a lot of success and then they produce a, a kind of a great hit later on
1: I don't know man it's that's yeah. uh, all over I, the I don't mind. know either with art it's different you don't you know something that can be your first uh I don't know I mean because do you count all the countless hours of ten thousand hours what they wrote but didn't publish you it's know fair. so it's it's harder to put it, say there. I don't know. Um, I think it's varied. Yeah, you know, the Hemingway did say, um, like, the worst thing for a young writer was early success, because <sighs> then you get caught into like trying to recreate that in that way, mm. versus taking the risk, you know, like that made you um, get that success.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the things that um, you obviously write about uh, in the books, but also you just described in your process, is this idea that. Like trusting your gut and having the self-confidence to say, I don't know if I'm right or not, but I want to do what I want to do. And I always think of this principle as like if I'm going to fail, I want to fail my way, right? Because if I fail, then I know that, well, that's the way I wanted to do it. But if I do it some other way that somebody else tells you, et cetera, and I fail, now I'm going to be left wondering, well, did I fail because I did the wrong
1: thing or did I fail because I didn't do what I wanted to do? Like how much of that?
0: Yes yeah, actually,
1: it. I've noticed a lot of the best founders, they think they're right. Mm-hmm. They have that level, they have that vision. They may not be, but they think they're right, and they're going to work. They, um, so like, for example, with this book, um, you know, I could have gone many ways with the publisher, and I stuck with my vision, you know, and because I knew I was right. Yeah. you know and in the end, you when you're creating something, when you're doing something, that's all you got is your vision for it, you know, and all you can do is the best version of that. Yeah, you know? but
0: but it's, it's a little different in building companies in the sense of like, if I'm building a software uh, product and you're writing a book, right, I can create a first version, I can show it to some people, I can iterate and kind of over, let's say a year, all of a sudden, I've pretty dialed it in in terms of, this is what the people, at least that I've shown it to, this is what they want, right, and I can do that from a data standpoint, I can do it from talking to the users, et cetera. Books are a little different in that you kind of write and write and write, and then there's this big you know, reveal, mm-hmm. and it either works or it doesn't, right? There's not a lot of, like, iterations between the writer and the audience. So there's iterations in terms of the writer and the publisher, the editor, etc. But how do you think about, like, serving what that reader wants without necessarily having that iterative feedback from them in the process?
1: That's where it comes um like in the end, you write for the reader, but you you can't like go out and ask people, "What do you want me to write about?" Of course, you know it's like the <laughs> Homer Simpson Cartha episode, right? And for the Everyman. But if you get enough feedback, you start to listen to it. You mm-hmm. know, um, you know, in the end, you gotta have a vision for what what is the best version of what you want to put out. You know, you like uh, also you want to write what you'd want to read. I wrote what would help me, mm-hmm. you know, I read my own book. It helps me, you know, um, my book is a book I would read and I would pass along. Yeah. You know, so that's another thing, you know,
0: it, it gets at this idea of, um, you ever meet somebody and they're doing all the right things, but something tells you they're doing it because they think that's what they're supposed to be doing. Sure. Right. Right. For whatever reason, when I see those people, I feel bad right and it's a thing where i'm like you're going through the right motions but it's very obvious that this is not actually contrived but it's kind of orchestrated and you one, even if you are end up being successful you're not going to have the enjoyment of that process because you just did what you thought you were supposed to do not because you wanted to do it and two if you don't actually kind of believe it you're unlikely to be successful at the end and i don't Ever know how to handle the situation because you can't say you're doing the wrong thing because technically they are kind of doing the right stuff, but it's it just feels very uh, manipulated or orchestrated, and so it's I don't know, it's just something that I've identified, but I don't know what to do with it when I see it. Any any thoughts or ideas there?
1: I mean, not much you can do. Pretty going to change the person. I mean, you really, you know, people are who they are. Yeah, you roll with it.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's true what uh what areas are you
1: uh excited about on the technology side other than crypto i'm not excited about crypto. i mean like look uh you know talking about crypto man most of it um is uh, excuse my language, is a shit show you know Fact. and we knew that most of us in it right but there's some great stuff in there that it reminds me the whole it reminded me of the dot-com boom right it was like most of the companies that came out were shit shows, should not have been public companies, right? should not have raised the money they did, but it, there was a frenzy. The crypto, it was a global frenzy and there was, anyone could have put money in, so imagine what, what will happen. You'll get a lot of shysters, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but in that, I mean really, that's what happened. Um, I'm laughing at your, your use of the word shyster. <laughs> You're being nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and But you know what happens is a new technology comes through. And gets known in the mainstream. And then when the bust happens, and these these things are, these things always happen that way, you know, then it's the the ones who care who start building stuff. You know, the ones who care. Then when it's when it's the in the bear markets, the ones who build in the bear markets are the good ones, not in the bull markets. Mm-hmm. And you start seeing like the useful stuff start to come out. You know, and that's what's happening there. And that'll show up in time. Um, as far as investing otherwise. I've taken a bit of a break, just for personal reasons. Um, you know, my, fir- my fund's fully deployed. I raise another fund, but um, I just take a break. You know, now I'm just kinda like keeping an eye on things, watching what people are investing in. Um, I'm advising areas, some companies.
0: Any areas uh, from like the technology side that you think are interesting
1: but don't see people talking about? It's a good question. Um, honestly, no, because I've pulled back. I'm just more like an observation mode. Mm-hmm. You know, it's more like learning, uh, seeing what's going on, which I think is actually healthy. You know, because if you're, if you're deploying capital, you look at things differently. You look opportunistically, uh, versus if you're not deploying capital, you're looking at observing, and um, you're calmer about it, mm-hmm. and you start to see the patterns and and what you want to get involved in. That's the kind of phase I'm in right now.
0: Yeah. One of the things I think you said to me uh, previously, and you'll correct me if if I'm misremembering this, um, is I think we were talking about uh, there's a lot of, not a lot, but there's some investors who are very uh, prescriptive in their investing. So they say, here's an industry. I believe that this is a problem. Somebody's going to create X solution. I'm going to go find a company that's building X, right? And they go and they try to find that and invest. There's another strategy of let me go find great founders. They'll tell me what they want to work on. They'll explain why it's important, etc. And then I'll back them. But they're the experts in that field. I don't necessarily have an opinion as to what they're doing. You fall more in the latter than the the former. Why gravitate towards that and more kind of the the founder being the
1: expert, etc. Versus you know you being the the genius well, on the hill. <laughs> yeah, uh, because I do seed, and seed it's you betting on people. And also, but I, I don't do it across the board. I don't invest in like, you know, I'm not investing in farm product, farming technology, or, or agriculture, or because I know nothing about it, or, or oils, oil wells, or, or even like pharma, or whatever. I'm doing it in tech, I know tech. You know, I'm smart enough in tech that I can look at something and see what the opportunities, and if I don't know the tech part as well, I know enough people in tech who are the best at what they do that I can run it by. So I have that advantage there. So in seed, you're betting on people. You know, you're not betting on. It's like when someone tries to give me a projections, like a or a, or like spreadsheets in a seed round. I'm like, what are you doing? It's a waste of your time, waste of my time. These are all made up numbers. You know, just sit down and just let's just have a. My favorite ones just conversations about what they're what they're building, what they want to build. You know, that's it. That's that's why I end up writing a, a you know sending a wire on. Um, it's more fun that way too when you bet on people, you know. Um, An industry. Uh, if I just do one industry alone, I guess I do tech. But tech is so big that you're covering a lot, mm-hmm. right? Um, because I've seen opportunities, you know. Because if let's say if I was thinking at one point I was going to do a fund that was focused on AR and VR, okay. And th- there was a lot of interest in funding that fund, but I decided not to do it because I realized first of all, VR it was still far out. Uh, the tech needed more years um it wasn't the right time to be investing and, and that's probably still true yeah right? it's yeah. still
0: it, it's getting better with yeah. things
1: like oculus etc but it still feels
0: that's at least five years Yeah,
1: ar is what's gonna take off you, you know? think
0: okay so you're in the camp of ar comes before vr oh i, yeah. d- I don't disagree
1: but that that's yeah, kinda yeah. just because the technology is easier and it's, and it's so easy to like And Apple, I think, is going to have something out with AR maybe out in two years, Mm -hmm. uh, within two years. And that'll change the game, you know? Um,
0: So here's a uh, theory that I have, which is you've seen all these uh, photo editing applications, right? The ability to put stickers, the ability to put um, Photoshop-type items, et cetera, into them, is really kind of like static AR. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so the things that kind of look like toys and play, et cetera, today, there's almost like this transition between, okay, we have reality. Then you get kind of what that static AR. Then you get more of like the AR where, hey, you can actually have a video and and put stuff in. Then maybe you even get more like live real AR, right? So like I can actually have the Google Glass or whatever type thing. And then eventually you get the fully immersive VR type stuff. But whether that's right or not, there's some transition from where we are today to like full VR. The thing I keep going back on is like, that stuff takes time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> like I think people say like, oh, of course VR is gonna be a thing. But then they snap their fingers and like, why isn't it here yet?
1: Well, I mean the tech is actually hard because it's, it's interesting with VR, it's actually the brain. Uh, the brain, like um, in most VR experiences, your mind, you kinda, your mind can't handle it more than 30 minutes. Like there's something about the, it's your mind, it screws with your mind, like this is not reality. People get headaches and all these things. There's things they are working out. They're working out and they will work them out. One of the things for the longest time was you can see your hands, and your mind gets screwed up about that, right? Mm-hmm. So now they've they've overcome that, right? But so now this, you just have two hands floating. So yeah, two <laughs> floaty hands, you know. But the brain, you know, is like trying to process this this version of reality. It knows it's not reality, and trying to be try to function in it, it's going of screw with it, <laughs> right? So that takes time. That they didn't expect that, but AR you don't have that problem, but. Going back to the reason why I was talking about it was, I decided not to do it because there was so much opportunity, like crypto was happening and these other things were happening, if you just do a very focused fund, that better be your obsession. You better be obsessed about ARVR, and I wasn't, mm-hmm. right? I'm more about, it's more about, for me it's like, look, I understand tech, I've been in it, I'm pretty smart about it, I know the right people, um, I can get in great deals, so I like betting on people. Mm-hmm. You know it's it's, you, it's a great thing to bet on people and they go on to build something that ends up being massive. It's kind of fun to watch. It's fun to, when they call you for help and you help them, you know, yeah. and it's fun just to be, a, you know, that way to be involved. That's one of the reasons why I still, well, I'm not investing, I'm advising some companies. Because you, you know, when you have experience, you have a CEO calls you with the issue you ha- they're having and you solve it for them in like a couple of minutes versus it would have taken them a month, mm-hmm. right? That's fun. You know, and, and but that comes from experience. You talked about
0: knowing the right people, right? And this is something that um, we've never talked about. But I'm interested in your insight. Uh, I think it was either Brent Bish or Patrick O'Shaughnessy he was on Twitter, and they were basically saying, "Look, one of the most defensible moats in business and investing is relationships. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. It's the, it's one of the things you can't automate away. You can't, you know, mm-hmm. build some product, whatever." I know you really well, you trust me or you don't. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you and I have done deals together
1: because we trust each other, actually. Okay. Like, hey, I'm yeah. doing this, you want to be at it? Because, yeah. Well, and so,
0: but out of that, if you go into meeting somebody with like the intentionality of like, I want to establish a relationship because I'm going to come back and do a deal with you later, you end up not trusting that person. They can kind of see through it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it, it's very um, counterintuitive, I think, in the sense of, you got to genuinely care about people, right? You got to genuinely like somebody. You got to genuinely want to spend pe- time with people. You have to provide a lot of value in conversation that it, they have to provide back. I mean, it, it's a very the, kind of time intensive
1: thing. No, that's a transactional relationship, right? Mm-hmm. And there are those in business. Um, I usually shy away from them. I just want to invest in good people. It's with funny. Friends. A lot of my friends tend to do that. I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's called self selection. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, I want to invest in good people with good people. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's it. It's very it's simple. It's not rocket science, man. Mm-hmm. Investing is not rocket science. Yeah.
0: Well, and, and the other piece of investing, I think that often, uh, especially early, inve- like people who are just starting out investing, they have the, idea that it's a binary outcome, right? And so what they go into it thinking is this is going to work or this is not going to work. But actually the investment decision, many of the best investors I know, they're looking at it on a spectrum or a probability standpoint, right? So yes, there's a binary outcome, but when I invest, I don't want to invest in the person that's got a 5% chance of succeeding. I'd love to invest in somebody who's got a 20% chance of ex- succeeding. And five to 20% both sound like, oh shit, that's probably not going to work. Right. But that's a pretty big gap in the startup world because they've done it before or they've got some like deep industry knowledge. They've got a certain mm-hmm. team. You know, there's all these things that can kind of move that percentage or probability up. What I don't know is if there's actually a way to quantify it. Right. So I'm
1: using numbers, but those are, uh, yeah, you I can't. my
0: finger stick it in the air and I think those Bingo. are the right numbers. Bingo. Bingo.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, like there's this criteria we all have, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, uh, one of my key criteria is who the other backers, who the other investors. You know, I call them door openers. Are they who the door? Not the door kickers, as you and I previous lives I thought put <laughs> the door openers right, um, because I've seen personally, like, hey, this guy's on the board of Facebook, and guess what? The companies invest in Facebook, keeps on buying, huh? Go figure. You know, like I've seen those patterns, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, I like to see, it. so I want to see who else is involved. I also know who's, I, you know, I know who's helpful, who's not, and what their what their real record is. Mm-hmm. So I always, that's actually one of my main criteria is I look at who the other investors are. There's deals I'll pass on, I like, but I don't, if I don't know the investors, like at least one of the investors well and I trust their judgment, I want to invest in it. So this brings up a uh, a very
0: controversial topic, Um, Because I think the consensus thought is, uh, at least over the last 10 years, has been very founder-friendly. I don't care who else is in the deal. You know, I'm an original thinker. Uh, I don't need to wait on everybody else. I can just invest. Um, Go through the whole list of like all the things that fall in the founder-friendly bucket. I think there's a resurgence coming back of the other type of buckets, right? And not necessarily being uh, adversarial to founders, but this belief that, no, it actually does matter who else invests, right, yeah. what, what you're talking about here.
1: Yeah, because just being early money is not founder friendly, because founder friendly is someone who also helps the founders when the thing's going up and when the thing's going down, mm-hmm. right, and those tend to be more, um, that's a specific kind of investor. Um, I would rather, like, for me it's always been like, look, I want to be the dumbest guy in the in that group putting a check in, really. Uh, Maybe we should use an iPhone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, just make sure it's still recording. You should be good. Are you sure? I'll let you know if you're not. Ready yet. All right. So I forgot where I was.
0: You're talking about um, founder friendly goes up, goes down, still helping. Yeah,
1: yeah. So. I think it's actually you know, you got when you're an investor or an entrepreneur you, you put on very different hats. I've been in both, right? Mm-hmm. And you realize that um, uh, you you look at these things differently and you gotta as an investor you're trying to maximize your returns, right? And you may fall in love with the investment. You may love the founder, you may love what they're doing, but you may think this is not a good investment, so you won't invest. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it's very, very different hats. And so you gotta have your criteria. Right. Certain criteria, you got to have certain criteria you stick to. And, um, you know, one of, so I, one of mine is actually I look at the other investors. And that's not the, I won't just go in because of certain other investors, but it'll, it's actually, um, but there's deals I will turn down because of the other investors.
0: One way to think about it is the other people around the table on the investing side are part of the team, right? You're underwriting the team, and the team is not just the employees or the founders. It's, Those other people on the board or the other investors around, they're going to make introductions. Right, they're going to open the doors. They're going to help on acquisitions. They're going to help in recruiting. Right, all this kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, sometimes you know, talented founders need none of that, right? So this is this is like a weighing game. This is Mm -hmm. there's no, it's an art. You know, I get these emails all the time. You know, we've created an AI platform that'll that'll you know simplify investing decision. You know, sign up now. I'm like you okay great you know if you got a massive fund that's algorithmically trading startup stuff maybe that would work but this is when you're betting on seed stage you're literally betting on people Mm -hmm. that's all it is Mm -hmm. it's um
0: it's one of these things that simple idea takes a really long time to understand you think so it's like bitcoin ready this is my whole theory on bitcoin
1: yeah what is bitcoin
0: Everyone is out overthinking it because it's so simple. Huh. Same thing with investing. Early stage investing comes down to backing the best people. Everything else is intellectual Olympics to make people feel like they're, smart they're tra- yeah, charge yeah, yeah. their two and twenty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. But at the end of the day, <laughs> it's finding really talented people that are gonna be successful without you and convincing them that they should take your money over the next guy, right? Or girl. Bitcoin is very similar in that it's such a simple idea. There's separation of state and money and it has a very certain monetary policy. So it either works or it doesn't very binary outcome. In my opinion, everything else is just noise around it. Cause people are basically bored, right? They're sitting there and they're analyzing this data point, that data point, and this and that and all, it doesn't matter. It either works or it doesn't. It's very binary. It's just like a venture investment it happens to be liquid, but that doesn't matter. And all of the kind of people spinning their wheels around it are doing it out of Ford more than anything else. Or, you know, trying
1: to be smart. Yeah, well, yeah, Yeah. exactly.
0: Like, if you believe that Bitcoin is going to be valuable in the future, it is likely to be much more valuable than it is today, right? So kind of in that binary outcome, it's got very asymmetry on the upside. But you as an investor then have to do the one thing that humans suck at doing which just have patience because mm-hmm. it's just going to take time. <laughs> and so what do you people do? They sit there and they, well, what about this? What about that? Well, here's the latest you know, fear mongering. Here's the latest bullish case, whatever. And they just spin their wheels over and over and over again. And when people ask me what's the most important thing for Bitcoin to be successful, I always just say time. Just let it ride its core. Like it's done fine for 11 years. Let it keep going. Early stage investing, same thing. And I think this all goes back to what you said earlier about the way that you write. It's when people have an idea in order to put it into a book, if they don't really understand it, they use big words because they think those big words lead to the reader thinking they're smart. But what ends up happening is the reader very quickly can tell if they're sophisticated. The person who writes with the simplest language and is kind of the most blunt about the idea, one has mastery, but two, that's where the most value comes from. And so that's true in writing, that's true in investing, and that's true in Bitcoin as well.
1: Yeah.
0: Good parallels. Right? What um,
1: What's the thing? I mean, like, look, any, um, the best, um, best people make it look easy. You know, when you're watching a truly great athlete, you're mm-hmm. watching, you know, they make it look easy. They make it look so natural. You know, you're watching a great fighter. They make it look easy. They make it look natural. Yeah. You know, um, but that's the ultimate You know that is the ultimate expression of all the hard work and all the sophistication is to get to a point where it looks easy.
0: Is there one writer and one investor that you think is one of those greats that make it look easy, but you or we all know that there's a bunch of hard work that goes into it? That when you think of like, hey, here's one of the greats that come to mind?
1: Well, look, Hemingway, but he doesn't make it look easy. Like, you know like holy shit that man could write but he was a he was a craftsman man um poetry you know you look at poetry that's real poetry is 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 now talk about distillation of ideas and concepts human truths down to just few words mm-hmm. you know that's that's real um look investors i don't know how to say they make it look easy like uh I mean I I know investors with amazing track records. Uh they just find you know, after a while they find their um what they're what they're good at and they just stick with that and just get better and better at it. Like some might be good at people, some might be good at this, some might be good at that, some, some might be good at sniffing out tech. Mm-hmm. You know. They find what their thing is and then they just like focus on that. Mhm. Not all of them are just betting on people. Some are like, we'll find the right tech, and then the people will with it, you know? Yeah.
0: Um, I forget the exact numbers, uh, so somebody on Twitter will correct me, um, but it's like, I think it's Sequoia's first fund. They had like nine investments in it, and I do 70, 80, 90% of the capital that came back that made it a very well-performing fund were th- based on two companies. Those two companies, they incubated internally. Wow. Right, and so this whole idea of venture capital—they right? were one of the earliest venture capital funds, but actually, they incubated two of the companies. That's interesting, right? Now, there's two pieces of that: one, the companies were successful, so obviously, that you know, kudos to them. But two is they most likely, I'm assuming, owned a bigger, larger portion, portion of it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right.
1: disproportionate portion.
0: of Yeah, it. yeah, and, yeah. And so it—it's—I it, bring that up because uh, not everyone does it the same way. Right, and if you compare the very best, like true venture capital firms, where they're just investing regardless of the stage, and somebody like a YC, right, who two different models, but they both can be successful, and it really is just like people doing what they think is the right thing to do.
1: It really is, man. It really, really is. You have your thing, you stick, you know, you go at it, give it your best, and you iterate, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, in anything. Um, As you said, even but writing, right? You don't publish your first draft. People don't see all the drafts you go through. You iterate the hell out of it, you know, Mm -hmm. until you get to a point, okay, this is the product I'm putting out.
0: Yeah. How do you think about, um, I'll I'll say media, but maybe that's not the, the correct term, but just society's moving into this, like, more shorter term attention span. You know, you've got Twitter, you've got things like TikTok, etc. Um, now you've got books that are uh, becoming more popular as audiobooks than written
1: books. And oh, audiobooks are saving publishing. Like for Lovisa, oh, you, you think that they're saving publishing? Okay, yeah, I mean, that. I have publishers tell me that. Like, look, audiobooks are doing so well. And think about the marginal cost of an audiobook mm-hmm. versus you know digital download versus you know a mm-hmm. paper book. Right? They make more. They charge just as much right it was and and uh audiobooks are a resurgence actually in publishing and and i had my publisher tell me that they can tell a book is really hitting it with their um with the audience when the audiobook does better than all the other uh editions and they called me and they said like look we have good news your audiobook is really outperforming the other editions and that's actually good news uh because of the profit margin associated with it, or no, because something else? it's a trend they've noticed, and the ones that end up doing well over time that the audiobook leads. Really? Yeah, that was interesting to me. Yeah, I would not. I would not guess that. Yeah,
0: it's um, it's interesting to think about because do you think that changes the way that people write?
1: Um, depends. <laughs> the way I write is my own unique style. I write almost like you would hear me speaking like the, my cadence and my sentence structure is written that way. So for me to read it was, um, I mean, I'm, doing an audiobook is actually really hard to read your own book. Why? You know? Because it's not like you just sit here in like a podcast and you talk. You're going sentence by sentence. There's a producer there. There's an engineer there. There's probably like another producer there. And they stop you make and make you go, repeat this, that, you know. You'll add ums and this and that. Or you, there'll be a pauses. Or there'll be like a little sound. So, you know, to read a book... Well, you'll be in the studio for days, morning till evening, reading, and your mouth gets really dry, and you are just like you're, What about your cadence? You can't just read fast in one point and slow in the other point, and you got to have emotion and rhythm, you know. And you really got to feel it. Um, I, you know, it's. But people love it, man. I'm getting like, um, like really great messages about the audiobook. Uh,
0: you just made me think if your unique style is writing the way you talk do you sit down and write and what you're actually typing or writing is the first creation or do you actually talk into a recording or voice notes or anything when i say
1: that right like i talk it's not that it's like there's a rhythm to it there's a rhythm of speech to it i don't do i i write i sit in front of a blank page and i write
0: so Kevin Hart has a documentary on Netflix. Uh, Plain is sitting here in the room with us and she'll correct me. Uh, and if I remember, it was a book where he started to write the book, but he would, whenever he had an idea, he would record on his phone on voice
1: notes. Yeah, he was on Joe Rogan and shared that too. Oh, is that where he said? Okay, yeah. yeah. So, so
0: basically he would record the voice notes and then like I'm assuming he didn't write the book, right? Like it got turned into a book later. But it was really interesting that I always thought of you write a book, then you go in the and through the process you described of like then you record the audio book. It's almost actually like he recorded the audio, it got turned into a book, and then maybe even got turned into an audio book afterwards. Well, I
1: think he recorded the thoughts. Yeah, yeah the thoughts, ideation of it. Yeah, the thoughts don't equal the the product. The mm-hmm. thoughts are the, the theme, but then you, you got to write the thing, mm-hmm. right? Which is different. How do you write it in a way that it's accent? It gets across. It's easy to read. It's easy to, you know, take in. That's still the work. Mm-hmm. I don't you, know. Do you find
0: that's the hardest part?
1: It's just a part of it. It's a part of doing just it. Just one part. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've played around with recording um, thoughts, uh, but because I'm a writer, I've trained myself enough that I can sit in from a blank page. And my You know, like, it's actually easy for me to bang them out there and then play with it. I can move things around. I can edit. I can right pages and just take one line and create something out of that one line
0: mm-hmm. yeah I um, I think a lot of, we were talking a little bit before about this like uh, passive listening um, that's going on and I think airpods have had a huge part of that etc um, but the content that people create I don't think we'll identify that it's changing but it starts to change
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. as you were right. talking well you were talking about like the attention span right like the me, the, everything is getting shorter and shorter which I'm finding really interesting like for example when the first version came out right um i got so many emails like right away this one came out i'm getting the emails but i'm getting more significantly more is instagram stories people like reaching out to me using instagram stories about how much the book means to them or how it's changing their lives and this one which is really i find kind of interesting but also bizarre because the instagram story disappears right yeah so if i didn't like open instagram that day i wouldn't have seen it Right, so they come I see a lot in my a lot in my Instagram box. There's like primary general, and then I think the other and other. I'll open it and they'll be like, all these people, you know, mention you a story, but when I click on it, it's expired. So I can't see what they said to me because then you know, unless I get to it in time. It's, you, you mean you don't walk around with your phone glued to your <laughs> uh, to your hand? <laughs> yeah, I do, but like I try. Social media is such as suck, you know, time suck. that I try not to. I had someone reach out to me. This guy. Um and he was like, Hey, your book, you know, really helped me. I read it twice. And I was like, Hey, thank you, whatever. And started hammering me that like, he's following me, why am I not following him? And like really started hammering me. Like I was it's some the guy had a lot of he was like something like, I don't know, ninety thousand followers and I don't know, I don't know why. I think he was insulted. I was like, Look man, I just um it's not my thing, man. Look, I follow only my friends, you yeah. know, or maybe except for a couple of people I really admire right and I don't want to say I don't admire you I just don't know you man like uh, but he was like really just going back and forth and then I could see he unfollowed me because you know I was like I actually took the time to explain him look man I only follow close friends that's what uh, um, one thing I do do is when people follow me I go check out their page I'm always very curious who these human beings are you know who the people are who follow because they're following because of my books right but I found that really strange an adult. This wasn't like a millennial, you know, mm-hmm. like a teenager or whatever. This was an adult, getting really upset that I kept on hammering Abby, like to not to follow him. So probably about to get myself in trouble here. Uh, but
0: there's a um, there's a group of people who uh, they usually come out of like the consulting, marketing type world where it's not authentic. Remember, remember what I told you about uh, people going through motions because they feel like they're orchestrated, like that's what mm-hmm. they're supposed to do? So there's a couple of people I'm thinking of immediately uh, ob- for obvious reasons. I'm not going to say who they are. but Oh, come on. Say who there. No. <laughs> they they do a lot of different things and they're the ones who they've got the 50 hashtags and they've got, you know what I mean? They're, yeah, they're doing yeah, all, all this type yeah. of stuff. And it's all the things that they're supposed to do if they want to grow an online audience they want to you know build a folly, all this kind of stuff, but because either it's the motions that they're focused on and not the quality of the content or there's a lack of authenticity, they usually have no i mean it's like ghost town, and it's a reminder to me, like even with the podcast, right uh, I do a podcast. I want as many people to listen as possible. And we can do all sorts of things to try to uh, increase the visibility or or, uh,
1: listeners, all kind of stuff. You know what's the number
0: one thing to do? Record quality conversations.
1: You know, content is, (laughs) in the end, it's the content is king. You know, like um, I was talking with my brother about it. He's like, look, when he did, I think, Tim Ferriss' original, you know, people worry about the right mic and this. When he did his, when he was in Tim Ferriss' pocket, he said, yeah, I was in my AirPods. Yeah, just online on my AirPods. He said, "Like, look," and I was like, "Yeah, content." And it's a very well downloaded episode. And says, content is king, in the end, people forget that, right? It's true. Um, but that's actually something I've been noticing, and it's I'm, I'm like, it's really interesting. So people contacting me are talking about the book by Instagram stories, which are ephemeral, which disappear. Mm-hmm. That's something I haven't seen before, right? And I wonder um, these are these are more like adults or these are all adults. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah which is really interesting right yeah. So I wonder where that's going this this content that comes and disappears right I was talking to this one guy um who runs an agency in uh in LA uh he represents TikTok stars so now this is, you could say like the guy spends time there, he's talking about, yeah, you know, and the talent this and the talent that. Dude, your talent's a 15-year-old who poses in their underwear and dances with bears, you know, with teddy yeah, bears. Yeah, you're, you're not talking about The Rock. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But like how he calls, like, yeah, and the talent will do this and then the talent will do that. I'm, you know, like, it's its uh, so, so my niece is... <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, but then this is, then he's referring to people who have like 11 million, 16 million followers on TikTok. You know, And you go look at their account and what they're doing, it's like the short content that doesn't, that's brief moments of dopamine hits that doesn't do anything for you. And I wonder where this is going. This has gotta evolve, all these things do. But like these nonstop dopamine hits, but that don't give you, usually in life, the way dopamine hits was structured, there's growth that comes from it. There's there's something involved in growth. There's no growth, there's no learning that's happening here. That's what I wonder about. So you get these dopamine hits without the learning, so then you're just gonna be addicted to dopamine hits, that's what you're gonna need. But, okay, so two things on this.
0: One is, uh, I've I've got a brother who's 23. Conversations throughout his friends and now my brothers and I uh, texting group chat, the memes drive the conversation. So all of the short videos, the viral stuff, like all this kind of stuff, that is the culture. And it took me a while to understand, but like, um, uh, what is it, Marshall, uh, Marshall McLuhan who says uh, the medium is the message, right? mm-hmm. like the meme's the message. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't fully appreciate this until uh, the recent, um, what do we call it, disagreement with Iran. So we kill somebody, they shoot rockets, right, all this, like serious stuff's going on. If you went on Instagram on pretty much anyone under the age of, I don't know, Thirty-five, right? Every single account was posting, "We're going to World War III," but they weren't like, "Hey, the President of the United States on this date has declared we're going to World War." III. It wasn't like a like a news broadcast. It was meme after meme after meme of when World War Three draft happens, and it's a guy like you know, nope, turning and running away, right? And like all these like stupid little memes, to the point where uh, Polina has a cousin who lives in Bulgaria. And he DM'd us and he says, why is my Instagram filled with World War Three memes, right? He's not – he didn't know. He's you know, 17, 18 years old, whatever he is. And what I started to understand is like that's how these kids communicate, right, is they, they don't write. They don't chat. It's all through this like very kind of um, visual audio and video-based uh, kind of short content and so like if you asked a kid right now this is actually an exercise i did with my brother which was he'll be embarrassed by this i said do you know how to write not like write a book but like take a pen and physically write and i was giving him a hard time and he was like yeah i do but my hand gets tired think about that for a second hmm. literally he doesn't write ever i don't ever write
1: actually we don't, none of us do it really do we
0: yeah, and so he was like, "Yeah, but if I write for two, like my hand gets tired." And you start to think about like society's changing, right? And that doesn't
1: matter for six months right. or a year or five years, it's but over a, it's fifty not, years. I mean, look, it's not a. There's you know humans evolve, so it's not a bad thing. They'll they'll figure things out. I just this ephemeral content, though. I wonder with these dopamine hits, um, that without the growth involved, mm-hmm. what does what does that lead to? Mm-hmm. Right. That's where I think is going to be interesting. Um, so I don't know.
0: What, one other trend for you that uh, you reminded me of um, that I'm still trying to understand, but uh, right now I'm fascinated by. So uh, you mentioned TikTok stars. There's two uh, exactly what you described. There are two um, girls that are sisters that are probably 13 and 15 that went viral on TikTok. And I don't have TikTok, so I could care less, didn't know, whatever. All of a sudden, I see an older guy who's a dad on Instagram. Somebody DM'd me a photo he posted. He's got a lot of followers. Who's this guy? Come to find out, he's the father of the two girls. And so when the girls went viral on TikTok at 13 and 15, they then told their parents to get TikTok accounts. So the mom and dad have TikTok accounts. And then they would bring the parents into their videos and tag their parents. Mm-hmm. The dad has one million followers on TikTok. On Instagram, he's got a couple hundred thousand. <laughs> right? And you start to realize, and, and he's like into it. Right? I mean, he's he, he like is enjoying the fact that like it's like a family affair. But you start to realize like that's basically what the Kardashians did with their TV show. Now you're just getting a replay of it on TikTok or Instagram or wherever. But now you're going to have these like, famous social media families not just you know you go viral now you're famous the kids are telling their parents to get on the platforms and it's just this weird thing that i I don't fully understand
1: yet what do you think is gonna i mean like tiktok's a phenomenon, right um what do you think is gonna happen there because like instagram you can understand that like i mean in the end these are companies they're built by companies these are not built by uh you know, nonprofit, well-meaning <laughs> socialist people—you know—who want good for the world—they're built by hardcore capitalists, right? And so, how does something like TikTok, uh, Instagram? You can understand that people will—you can—it's easy to create a following and then sell from there. So, you know, mm-hmm. if you make whatever you're known for, you can just it, people make good livings of Instagram. Um, and it was always known that would happen. It was always—it was easy to make that that leap. What do you think about TikTok though? I'm been trying to figure that out. Like how do you how will that mon- one of the ways they're monetizing is for example like this guy I met, he's a talent agent. So people pay mm-hmm. the the talent, you know, a lot of the content actually it turns out with people with big followings is paid for. So yeah. I can't I can't
0: say what the product is cuz I think they'd be upset, but there's a a well-known game um that uh is popular in the younger demographic. And recently, uh, I sat down with one of the the guys and he said uh, they saw this huge spike, like a a very obvious something happened. They went to all the platforms. They couldn't find They couldn't figure it out, couldn't figure it out, right? And they're, you know, early 30s or so. Somebody that knows somebody knows somebody says, oh, there was a kid who made a TikTok getting in the car Walking in the store, going to the aisle, grabbing the game, going to the register, at home, playing the game. Had a lot of followers. That one viral video on TikTok, there was no link to click on. There was no, you know, uh, click here to buy, none of that stuff. But the association and the awareness of the product, people then went that followed that person online and uh, sales spiked. And so it's like very hard to engineer, very very not hard for, to measure. Not hard to engineer, hard no to reason. measure. No, because as I learned from this guy,
1: people pay for this. Oh, if you pay,
0: yeah, yeah. If if you pay, if you just go to somebody who's got a big audience, say I'll pay you money, go. And do they this. have
1: they have yeah. they have people representing them. It turns out all, all these kids, with oh yeah, have uh, big followings.
0: They so here's a uh, here's an idea for you. The sports stars of tomorrow are actually gonna be the social media stars. So take the top, I don't know, 20 recruits coming out uh, in basketball this year. I don't know the exact numbers. I bet you five to 10 of them went viral at some point in their high school career, and that's what built the buzz, and it translates into they'll go to the best schools, etc. cetera. And so if you're a parent, right? I play college football what you would do is you would basically hope to god that the high school had a video of the games (laughs) then they would either just give you the game tapes and you could just mail them to schools or you would basically sit down and try to cut them up into a highlight tape right this is before all these online platforms and everything right literally they were recording on vhs's but you would send it directly to that one school and hope that that school liked it and they call you and you kind of go this process now There's a kid in the stands who's got a camera who takes a video of some kid dunking or running for a touchdown or whatever. Next you know it goes viral. They tag the kid and that's how these kids are getting discovered is they're becoming social media phenomenons that translates into success.
1: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, TikTok's fascinating man. It's because it is a new, just this growth. um. Do you have one? I I mean, I open, I look, I'm in tech, you know, I, I, if something's taking off, I always go check it out. Mm-hmm. I have an account, you know, I played around with it. Uh, more like seeing what the, I want to understand the product. Right? Do you think it's
0: sustainable? Like as a platform? Meaning uh, we've seen a lot of platforms come, there's hype and they dissipate. You think that this one is, it becomes the Facebooks, Twitters, Instagrams that are around 10 years I don't years think,
1: from? I don't think that's the right analogy. I think this okay. is something different. Why? Uh, Facebook is still, um, it was a social network, but it was still more of an existing paradigm, right? Mm-hmm. And and even Instagram was a social network built around photos. Uh, Instagram was like the only real threat to Facebook, which is why Facebook bought them, right? Uh, <laughs> seriously, it was the only real social social network that was becoming a threat, and one of the smartest decisions they ever made. Um,
0: Mark's the greatest M and A. He Archibiter really is, man. World. It's
1: impressive. That's when you have when you have a founder of vision who who owns and who has control. Mm-hmm. They will go do make WhatsApp. What he gave up for that, which seems brilliant now, right? Same thing at the that, time, twenty billion dollars or whatever it was, that yeah. seemed insane. Look at the time for Instagram, a billion dollars seemed insane, right? Um,
0: he bought both of those for twenty one billion. That's it.
1: That's it. <laughs> <laughs> funny, right? Right. Like <laughs> compared to what they're worth today, <laughs> it's funny money. Um, yeah, so I don't know, but TikTok, I think it's a different paradigm. I don't know, I haven't spent enough time on it. I know Gary Vee's really bullish on it, mm-hmm. and that guy's got a good nose for stuff.
0: Underrated. As for as much, I think, shit as people give him because of he's so out there and you know creates all this content, et cetera, if you look at his track record, he's one of the real... Legitimate guys.
1: Yeah, he's got a very good nose for what the uh, where, where things are going, trends and stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's got a very sharp nose for that. Yeah.
0: How do you evaluate something like a TikTok when you're looking at it from a, is it real? Is it not? Like, like, just like what's that process? So you get an account, you kind of play around with it, whatever, and then do you spend more time thinking like introvertedly, or do you go and talk to a bunch of people? I'll talk to-,
1: to people. Like I went and um, talked to this guy who runs a marketing agency for. Actually, some of the big accounts like the Super Bowl and whatever, when they when they're doing stuff on TikTok, you know, I'm like, mm-hmm. what are they doing and so forth to understand what's going on and what the growth is. And he's like, look, man, engagement and all this stuff on Instagram is going down. TikTok is just going up, you know. So, um, but it's a different kind of engagement. It's a very very different. So you can't compare apples to oranges there. It's a very different kind of engagement that. Um, You know, you know the founder of Vine. You know Mm -hmm. that Twitter bought, which Twitter's just great at destroying products. You know, and they had a real chance with Vine to create something like the original TikTok. There, on top of the Twitter platform and users, right? That's what they had. Um, That guy's come out with a new version of Vine, which is what, like five second or twelve second loops or whatever. Uh, You're talking about
0: Byte, and uh, I think it's six seconds, if I remember correctly. Because TikTok, I think, is one minute and Byte is six. Listen, we sound like we're like like old people. Like, oh, did you hear about this TikTok thing that the kids are playing with? <laughs>
1: well, at some point, <laughs> but I think it's one minute and six seconds is
0: the difference between the two.
1: At some point, you know, you want to be on top of everything that's going on if you're an investor, right? And also, I'm fascinated by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I'm not someone who like spends a lot of time like building a social media following. I'm terrible at it. You know, people find me like I don't like. Um, a friend of mine is like, oh yeah, I'll get you in this group and all of us are, you know, like we, we push each other's things up and we've gotten like now hundreds of thousands of followers. I'm like, no, that's a lot of work to get followers. You know, like I'd rather just people find me. If they're interested, they'll find me. Quality know? wins. Yeah, then you look at my engagement versus theirs. It's funny. They may have like 10x as many followers as I have or 100x. Engagement is similar. Yeah. You know, it's kind of funny, right? And you'd rather have those, uh, what was it? Uh who's Kelly, something Kelly said, you need a thousand true fans. Kevin Kelly.
0: Um, I don't know who that is. Uh, but Paul Graham says you need, uh, a hundred people who love your product or, or company, not a thousand people who kind of like you. So similar sentiment. Yeah. You it need like, true yeah.
1: fans. You'd rather have true fans, right? Yeah. Who will spread your word. Um, of course.
0: especially how the social platforms are built, right? Is, uh, the engagement drives the virality of something. And so that, that's really important. Um, what, um, what's the biggest thing that you're excited about over the next 12 months? Tech, writing, anything.
1: Honestly, that's a great question, and the answer is I don't know. I'm kind of in an in a observation phase, observing myself, observing life. It's actually
0: a fantastic answer.
1: It is? It's, it's honest. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when people come in, if I ask them that question, they bullshit me. <laughs> That's funny, <laughs> right?
0: <laughs> like you, you genuinely don't know, right?
1: Yeah, genuinely don't know.
0: All right, before we finish up, I talked to everyone about aliens. Uh huh. Believer or non-believer? Not.
1: I'm agnostic. Uh, and it's, okay, look, why? I, well, I kind of don't care. That's a very unique position
0: to take. So why don't you care?
1: Because does it affect my life? If the alien show my doorstep tomorrow affects my life, then I will care okay, you know, but until they do. It's fun, like that Bob Lazar thing was fun to watch. Unbelievable. The, and that Joe Rogan episode and just that documentary was fun, it makes you go, huh, that sounds pretty credible. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that be cool? It, it, that's my response is like, wouldn't that be cool? But I'm not gonna sit there and bet either way. So
0: uh, there's this guy who um, I had come on the podcast He's like one of these like ancient alien guys. So like I always describe the ancient alien theory as like I buy the science of like the first 80% and then they describe well that scientific anomaly that occurred aliens did it. Eh, They lose me on that part but he came on the podcast and and, uh, one thing he said to me um, that's just seared in my brain and probably will never leave. It's kind of like a good book. You take it away and you never forget it. He said humans, every human has the same two questions at some point in their life. Are we here alone, and what happens when I die? and I thought that was a really
1: interesting way. there's to another frame one there's another life. one. Why am I here? Why am I here? that's I would say we all go through that.
0: Do you have an answer?
1: No do you think it's, I've had different answers different points in my life I was but ask, honestly, Do you think it's don't. possible to get one answer yeah I, I don't I mean look people find faith uh, a lot of people do it through faith, you mm-hmm. know um. Some people do. There is no purpose. You know, some people do. This the whole thing is an illusion. I've studied with mystics. I um, I was in Nepal last year uh, in Mustang Valley, which was this part of Nepal that was just opened up, and studied with the Bon, who are the mystics of Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, I mean, the OGs. They've been around for sixteen thousand years. They were there before Buddhism got to Tibet, and their whole thing is about awakening from the illusion. And I studied with them their practices. Um, and they literally believed, like, this, you know, one of them looked me straight in the eyes. I was asking why he was going to go in a cave. And I went saw the cave, literally in a cliff in the Himalayas, but nothing. In darkness for, like, months. with barely food and just meditating in the wall. And I'm like, why are you going to do it? And he looked me in the eyes and he said, uh, because dreams are an illusion, and this is an illusion, and I want to break free. You know, it's like, fucking crazy. Man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but that's their thing, right? Not ours, but that's their thing. Yeah, and, and by the way, I mean crazy in a positive way. Yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. that He's
0: so smart in order to, to like. Oh yeah, understand he was. Him. He
1: was brilliant. He was. Um, his title was Geshe, which is professor. So like very well trained in their monasteries, and uh, but this is part of the training, right? And so, so for them, it's, it's like this whole thing is a dream. This whole thing doesn't exist. There's only consciousness. This is just consciousness experiencing itself. You know, and you look at the other mystics. You look at uh, Christian mystics, Sufi mystics. You look at uh, Jewish mystics. You look at any tradition. You go to the mystics, which are, which are always the ones that, the nutjobs, the outsiders, but they're the ones they end up like then kind of co-opting their what they say and making mainstream, and that becomes religion often. Um, they all say the same thing. They literally all say the same thing that I've come across, which is like this whole thing's an, this whole thing's an illusion. It's the Matrix. Th- right? I was gonna say they're like the uh, the non-tech version of the simulation theory, oh. <laughs> right? The simulation, the hologram theory, everything. That's just that's been around forever, man. Like that's been around for as long as man's been around. Mm-hmm. Like that, like that. They're like this this thing's an illusion, and the mind is um, the mind is the thing that generates it, and and. Different philosophies try to approach it differently, and and the East they want to break free of it, right? And the Western, or like you go down to more like the judaic Christian, whatever they're they're like, how can I use this to make my life better? But the underlying theory mm. is the same. This whole thing's an illusion. So that's a very very interesting one. Like, what is this whole thing? It's just like waves of the ocean that come and go, but the ocean's still there, but the waves gone. But the waves hasn't really gone. Well. It, it brings the whole conversation full
0: circle in that it does, whether it's, well, (laughs) whether it's the military, whether it's you sitting in a library as a kid, right? Whether it's, um, building companies, writing, whatever, it's all mindset. I mean, ultimately just what you described in the East versus the West perspective on the same theory or the same like application, it's just mindset. What are you optimizing for? Right? And the way that I think about this is it goes back to the idea that every your mind is more powerful than you'll ever understand.-hmm, right? And I tweeted um, earlier this week there's a uh, I think it was an article, and in the article, the cover photo was one part of a fruit fly's brain, and they have successfully mapped not the whole brain, <laughs> one part of a fruit fly's brain. They have all the connections, all the stuff. It is the most complex thing you've ever seen. And they're talking about a fruit fly. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, 20% of the brain or whatever. Well, when you move up to a human brain, there's zero chance during our lifetime we'll ever understand it. And so it's just what do you want to, like what, what mindset do you want to put your brain into? Your body follows, your actions follow, right? All of these things follow that but like you're ultimately in control, which probably scares the shit out of people.
1: Mm-hmm. Hey, what do you think we're at? like? You answer that question. Why are we here?
0: I, I don't think that there's an answer. Like in the sense of if you ask the same person five times different. Points uh, in a life? Yeah, yeah. They, they all have different answers. Yeah. And also if you take, I got four brothers. Five kids who all grew up in the same environment, very similar, did things on a daily basis, whatever, and you all ask us, we would all have different answers. And so it, it's not a "what were you taught" type thing, etc. I really think it is, uh, "What's the answer for me today?"
1: There's also another question many people have asked at some point in their lifetime. Um, you know, the Shakespeare was the one who put it really well: "To be or not to be." You know. People, when they go through shit, you know, people have a lot of people have been at that point. Some people have actually gone beyond that point, you know, right? I'm sure you have friends, I have friends, you know, Mm -hmm. who've that's another one that uh, that's a very human one. May not phrase it that way, but I I tend to find
0: um, you ever go to a store and uh, when you're there and you look at a product and there's all the shiny ones, and then there's the one that obviously has been through some shit, got dropped, it you know, whatever. Like, you can just tell it's different, right? I always think about that with people. A lot of times when you meet people, the people that stick out to me are the people that they don't tell you, and you don't know, but you can tell they've been through shit. Because they tend to be calmer. They tend to be more rational. A lot of times they tend to be happier, actually, right? Like, they have all of these things that... It's not taught in a school whatever it's just they've been through challenges and they come out stronger because of it
1: yeah and the end ends up being a choice you know who are you going to be through that you know and i talked about that a lot in the book and you know, i share my own experience it's like you know we have a two we have and look i've been guilty of it so i can speak from it like you have two choices as an adult in situations you're either going to be the victim of this story or you're going to be the hero of this story Same story, your choice, and that creates the narrative, and that actually is what creates the 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 resulting story. That's a choice. That's a mindset, and you know, people one can choose to do either.
0: We're ending on that. (laughs) That was perfect. (laughs) Um, Where uh, where can people find the book?
1: Oh, it's um, you know, love yourself like your life depends on. It's it's a really special book. I hope you get it. It's on any bookstore, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, independent bookstores, wherever fine books are sold, Audible, you name it.
0: I've had a lot of people come on here and talk about their books, and I've never said this, but I actually highly recommend people go get this book. Thank you, man. Of course. That doesn't actually mean shit in the world, (laughs) but legitimately I think it's a good book. Um, People should go get it. So, All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to this. Thank you so much for your time, and uh, we'll have to do this again for sure.
1: I would love it. This was fun. Hey,
0: everyone, Pop here.